Would you have ever imagined that we'd have to talk about saving democracy in America? Well, here we are. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Our guest today says that millions of Americans are grieving over what's happening to our democracy. I, I wonder how much they really care, to be honest. Having been born in America in the 1950s, my generation took it for granted that our republic, our democracy, was rock solid. Sure, there was the image of the Russians and their Iron Curtain. There were the literal cartoon ads on TV portraying a Soviet boot crushing American citizens, taking control of our TV and radio. There was the bomb shelter industry, which had limited success. And all of us kids knew it was a joke hiding under our desks. A nuclear bomb would pay that. No, never mind. And of course, Sputnik. But we kids knew America not only was the strongest, but even more important, we knew and took immense pride in the fact that oppressed people throughout the globe looked up to America, to our freedom and our democracy. There was strength that went beyond mere quantification. Each of our two American political parties was committed to democracy. They were as committed as the other. What a different world that was. Who could have imagined we'd be where we are today, that there needs to be something called the Summit for Democracy? No American could have imagined one of those two parties would today be seriously focused on a threat as a threat to our democracy, that it would openly call for replacement of our Republican system with an authoritarian religious nationalist regime which would take away the cherished right to, to dissent and our freedom of religion. We beat us a fascist regime in the Second World War, yet today fascism is the greatest threat since that war. No, and it's not just Russia this time. It's uh, fascist regimes in Hungary and until recently in Brazil. And most frightening, the Republican Party of our own country has become what can be defined as a genuine domestic enemy, a powerful, committed, exceedingly well-funded threat to our precious democracy. And they are there in our Congress. One was our president who continues to attack democracy with the intent of doing away with it. This is serious stuff we never thought could happen here. Our guest today is Eli Merritt, who's an editor of a book titled How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders. Eli Merritt's a political historian at Vanderbilt University, where he researches the ethics of democracy and the founding principles of the United States. Dr. Merritt has written for the LA Times, Seattle Times, New York Times, New York Daily News, USA Today, International Herald Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle, Nashville, Tennessean, on and on many publications. He also writes for Substack's American Commonwealth, a newsletter about history, politics, and the democratic values. He argues we must embrace and hand down to the next generation in order to sustain our free form of government. Eli Merritt, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. 
Thank you, Bert. It's great to be here. There's been a tremendous amount of worried discussion about the future of democracy since 2016. Your new book is a collection of quotations from the Summit for mm -hmm. Democracy. Why did you think that was needed? Well, uh, you know, I'll tell you how the book came about. Sure. Um, I, I'm a person who I thought five years or so ago that I understood democracy, but as I studied it more and more deeply, what I learned is there was always more to learn. Yes. So I listened to, uh, during the actual summit, I heard one or two of the uh, presentations by the world leaders and found them somewhat intriguing. But later, I decided to listen to more. And as I did that, I did indeed find that I was learning about democracy uh, from more of a global perspective. But also, I really found there were some real gems of wisdom, some beautiful things that were said by many of the, of the world leaders and I began to jot those down, if, as I am wont to do, mm. and I ended up sort of concluding after several hours of listening uh, attentively that there was something really here that was of great importance. I, for one, have been sustained and aided greatly and stabilized and grounded over the years from my readings of some isolated quotations, but certainly I have books of letters and books of speeches by Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. And the, and I began to feel like there was something going on here in the summits in a selective manner, if you could call out the best of what was being said. And I just decided after jotting some of these things down, I didn't necessarily think I would be putting it together as a book, but it just evolved. And I thought this has helped me learn about democracy. This has helped me feel inspired about democracy. This helped me to gain a sense of hope on a domestic and international level. So let me see if I can share them with others. So that's the origins. And uh, the response of people so far is very positive. Now, I, I think of the book in many ways. One is it's a book of daily meditations on democracy. And I, 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 I every day, I have the advanced reader copy. I'm already using it in that way myself. It's not something you can read once and put aside. You can just keep it by your bedside or for, for me by my reading chair. And I look at it every day. It's always good to have a nice reading chair, I must say. And so th this is summit, the first Summit for Democracy. When, when did it happen? Why? And when is the second one coming up? The first summit happened in early December of 2021, the same year, uh, of course, of January 6th. And but it had been planned by Biden. It was one of his campaign promises. So this is, you know, often these um, summits are the product of you know, a division in the State Department or perhaps the the head of the State Department. But this is something that really was the brainchild from the very beginning of Biden. I think he just prudently recognized that not only is there increasing threat to democracy domestically, but, you know, he looked at the statistics that say there's been the 15 year backsliding of democracy throughout the world and gains by authoritarians. So he made the decision to organize this. And it's, you know, the focus is, you know, the focus is not necessarily, you know, world leaders are going to gather together and give instruction to folks on how to secure their democracies at a domestic level, because the focus is global, how to unite globally. Uh, but there, it, it really, the focus ends up being just as much about what we all need to do within our own democracies, as well as how democracies of the world can unite behind the critical values of democracy. And so you ask about the second summit, they made promises at the first summit to have a second summit. And that second summit is occurring at the end of March, end of the 
of this month on the 29th and 30th. And it's going to be somewhere in the uh, currently United States? Um, you know, they, he did something a little different this time. Last last year, it was entirely virtual, or in two, uh-huh. end of 2021, oh, yeah. it, was, it was virtual. <clears throat> Biden's done something, Biden and Blinken have done something interesting this time, and that is they have decided to make the United States be one host, but they've also selected other hosts from the other hemispheres, I think, to sort of take the United States off of its pedestal Mm. as the leader, kind of to signify we're doing this together. So those other countries are Costa Rica and the Netherlands and Namibia and one other I can't think of right now. But so they're going to be doing half virtual, half in person in all of those locations. That sounds really good. And it's it's so good to hear that the president is uh, is actually doing this, and and you know we have a, a president now who actually cares about democracy and uh, thinks it's important. And you know, democracy is is not the most efficient form of government. That is for sure. When people feel when when people feel hungry, when they're out of work, if the transportation system is a wreck. There's a demand for quickly addressing such problems. We remember one particular Italian guy who uh, uh, boasted about making the trains run on time. And people do care about these things. In these cases where things are, you know, sort of running down, where, you know, people feel hungry when the transportation system ain't great, uh, the demand for authoritarianism grows. The idea of a uh, what the Spanish call a caudillo, some you know, strong man on a white horse comes in to fix everything. And it's interesting to me how d- democracy is is waning a little bit, the demand for democracy. The, according to The Economist magazine, uh, almost half of the world's population live in a democracy, while a third live under authoritarian rule. And there's more and more examples of that all around the world. And what what about what are the inspirations against democracy? And and where do they keep uh, popping up? Do you think? And how can that be addressed given its you know lack of efficiency? Well, I think you know one origin to if we think of it this way, the beginnings of the weakenings of a democracy is power-hungry demagogues and power-hungry authoritarians who are absolute corrupting forces beginning to gain a foothold. And then uh, both of these two political personality types are are extremely well-known for disinformation Hmm. and lying and deception, as we're seeing in our country. And it's really a universal cause of the corruption and debilitation of of what we might have declared earlier was a healthy democracy. So, you know, there are a lot of cultural influences. A lot of people say, hey, you know, it's Trump is just a symptom, for example. I, I don't agree with that. I, I do agree that there are conditions that in countries, both historically and, and today, that create fertile ground for the rise of a demagogue. Um, but the, the, I think of primary causes and secondary causes and tertiary causes I mean, even if that's true, if the demagogue is allowed to rise by the political system, by the people, then what you're going to have is a quadrupling or worse of the destruction or negative impact on the democracy. Uh, One of the 
one a talk I've been giving, and I will probably continue continue to give for the next six months or so, that I'm really enjoying, is called Alexander Hamilton's Theory of Democratic Collapse. Uh, a president commences a demagogue and ends a tyrant. You or others might recognize that from Federalist One by Alexander Hamilton, but it there there is a there is a political science to the health of democracy, and there's also a political science to the demise or weakening of democracies, and this has been discussed in in well-known books like How Democracies Die, but it's really well-known, going back to the Greeks and the Romans, that if a demagogue is allowed to filter up through the system and gain power, already something very terrible is happening to a country because the demagogue is divisive and hate-mongering and fear-mongering and divides people who need to be unified. But that's sort of detriment number one. Fascinating also, which we've seen in our country, once that demagogue who already lacks a moral compass and mm. is destructive and, and ego, ego hungry, gains an awesome power like the White House, the demagogue uh, worsens and descends into authoritarianism. So that's really what Hamilton was telling us back in the year of the same year that we wrote our Constitution, 1787, that beware of demagogues because they will bring down democracies. So that's a process that I think is very, very significant. And people become, as you said, is there is there is uh, more demagoguery. We live in a demagogic culture. People do get exhausted with that. Mm. And they also get deceived. You know, if 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 only the demagogues and authoritarians have the megaphone. People, you know, people, we're all followers. We are all followers. There's nothing about a certain public, uh, a certain portion of our population that's necessarily more vulnerable than others. We all are followers of what we're hearing and, and learning. So the, the big lie, imagine, imagine we live now in a society where only thing that existed without punishment was the big lie. Uh, where you'd have an authoritarian state, people would have to fall in line. So it's a, it's a slippery slope, but there is also this science of step one, a demagogue gets into high power. Step two, the demagogue transforms into more authoritarianism, corrupts the system, takes away free and fair elections. So there's a well-known process out there, and we have lived it over the past six or seven years. I mean, we're certainly watching it in process. I, I do find it fascinating that uh, uh, DeSantis of Florida is trying to move even more to the right. And, he, he, you know, the, the oxygen is there for, for him to do that. Uh, and, and people are following that because it's, it's simple. It's, it's, it's so much easier to follow a leader, as you say. Uh, you know, democracy, as they say, is not a spectator sport. People have to get involved in that. And, uh, and that's a lot more challenging than just, uh, oh, just let the, let the uh, leader do it. And it's fascinating to me how, you know, one of the things about American democracy and, and our current system based on, you know, TV ads and money is the factor of celebrity. You know, you have to be a, a star, uh, a, a somebody who comes across really well on TV. One of the problems that this current president has, I think, is that he's not, you know, he's not a celebrity. He's not a Hollywood star. Uh, and but... Uh, it, I think having to do that and, and this system that we have where people look for some great leader who's got some uh, pizzazz, uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a problem. I wonder how the, uh, the Summer for Democracy has talked about that. Uh, the, well, the, the Summit for Democracy, the, the one that took place in right. 
it, you, there were three areas of focus uh, in the promotion of human rights yeah. and defending against promotion of human rights, defending against authoritarians and defending against corruption. Um, but I would say that maybe perhaps the way the, the summit addressed that best was its attention to the media. And of course, as, as is necessary, the media, I mean, the, the summit in many of the speeches, there's just an absolute fervent support of free and independent media. Sure. But there was an e equal emphasis in recognizing the, the, the pernicious problem we have now of, of disinformation. Uh, so that, that there's much in, there's much in the summit and there's certain individuals to really follow. I was very impressed and not by any of the American speakers when it came to what are we going to do about disinformation and demagoguery? Mm. There's um, the president of the uh, European council, whose name is Charles Michel, who just really is getting out in front on this and saying, look, we, if we want our democracies to survive and thrive, we must make certain that our digital communications have a net positive effect on democracy, not a net negative effect. And so he, he's someone to follow. And I'm very interested in the second summit, and, and I'm going to be paying particular interest, uh, importantly, to what they're saying and what proposals are being made with regard to disinformation. As you probably know, the United States has the, I'll call them the loosest laws uh, in the world, I believe, when it comes to free speech. So we talk about free speech absolutism here. We have some limits on that. Um, but I think we're going to have in the coming decades, we're going to have a lot to learn in watching Europe, what they do with the big tech companies and also with disinformation. And that I'll say you brought up DeSantis. It is well known from history. There's a pattern. You have a destructive demagogue in place. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it can be a gateway to authoritarians coming in. I won't say, as many people are, that DeSantis is an authoritarian because I, I don't think that's productive and helpful to say. But I will say that politi political science has a term that is very helpful for folks. And I'm um, I'm, in, I'm in the beginning stages of contemplating writing a piece on this, whether an op-ed or a piece I will release on uh, my Substack, American Commonwealth. Uh, but there's something called constitutional hardball that's been written about. And it is a, and it, typically it's a highly intelligent, legally informed, constitutionally informed individual, unlike Donald Trump, we'll all agree, who simply decides that they are going to break norms, going to break pre-existing norms because there's nothing illegal about doing that. Mm. And that's what happens when a person uh, practices constitutional hardball. And it's also documented in political science as a very worrisome sign that it's we, we can't say no one uh, can say for certain what anyone will do in the future, including DeSantis, if he reaches the White House. But constitutional hardball can be sort of the early stages of worsening authoritarianism. So DeSantis is someone to uh, to watch and be very, very worried about. I'd say so. There's a lot. To, it, it, it's constitutional hardball. That's an interesting uh, concept. And I can see the point of how it can be played. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The uh, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Eli Merritt, editor of a book titled <laughs> How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 world leaders. And I do think it's it's interesting. I, I have wondered how much people really care 
about democracy, the average person. You know, there's there was all that uh, concern about the price of gasoline, and that seemed to take really high precedence. Of course, it's gone down now, but it's. I do find it encouraging that in the recent 2022 midterms, there are indications that voters were motivated about preserving democracy in the face of inflation, wars, climate change, etc. What's what's your sense of how much Americans are really motivated by threats to democracy, or is it too uh, abstract for them? What's your sense? Well, my sense is, uh, as we've discussed earlier, democracy is a hard thing to understand. And Mm. so I think that people care deeply about democracy if we put it into terms such as your freedoms and your liberties and the rights of your children uh, to share in the pursuit of equality and justice. And additionally, as you know, democracy is very linked to creating uh, economic opportunity for the people. Yes, I'm, I'm remembering uh, one person, one quotation uh, from the book that from the from the first summit, uh, hunger, hunger and poverty, no, not democracy, mm. something like that. So there is this mm-hmm. intimate connection between at least some opportunity to prosper and democracy. So I, I, I think that like like every movement, uh, people need to be motivated. We need leadership like Biden. I think he is just a beautiful embodiment of all the best of democratic values. Indeed. If, if he had a little more charisma, I think mm. he could be more effective. Um, well. But also what, what, what I've observed fascinate, very fascinating to me, what I've observed in sort of all my walks and conversations over the past couple of years is really a sense of denial uh, in many people from folks I know in departments of political science from top universities, you know, in the country down to, uh, I gave this talk on Alexander Hamilton's theory of democratic collapse recently to a group of Stanford students. And, you know, what several of them said when I then turned uh, turned the questioning to learn from them what was going on and what would it take for them to get involved, you know, they said correctly, you know, we have tuned all this stuff out. I mean, since I was 12 or 13, there's been this sense of chaos and doom and gloom. And so a lot of them have tuned that out, and they've obviously had, you know, better things to do on Instagram and Snapchat and things like Mm -hmm. that. So I I think it's not... I think that people care deeply, and those of us that have already found a way to get involved with democracy and pass down what my father used to call the spirit of liberty to the next generation, it's sort of our job as leaders or, or, or adults to figure out how to reach folks and how to engage them. And I will say, I do, you know, the, probably the most important theme of the book and of the summit was you know, the first principle outlined is to get involved. Yes. And, but, but I know that's a high ask for many people. So that I think that happens in stages. I don't, I don't think it's very uh, easy to get involved with, you know, what I call democracy work, unless someone first studies democracy and comes to understand democracy. So for anyone that's thinking, well, yeah, maybe I, I, the thing to do is just, just begin to learn about democracy. I mean, and, and there's so many ways to do that. And once you get in a little bit and you learn 
And you understand, I'm thinking of the summit again now, Mm -hmm. where there's a soft side and a hard side to democracy. And so much beautiful soft side particularly came out from the leaders of the Caribbean island democracies saying, look, you know, there is no other form of government you can go towards that is going to promise. And these are some terms that were used at the summit, self-actualization, self-realization, fulfillment of human potential, the pursuit of human dignity. So we just need to get out there and reach people and help remind them and, and, and set off, set off uh, light bulbs, uh, however we need to do it, so that everyone can get involved. Once you first learn about democracy in some form, and then look for a small area where you can get involved and make, and make a difference. We're all small actors in this large project, but very small actors. But if you get 1,000 small actors and then 10,000, you get up to a million and then 20 million small actors, you're really, really mm. doing uh, doing some big stuff out there. Absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. And uh, people had, a, a lot of people are feeling like, uh, you know, maybe there's really not such democracy anymore that we talk about democracy in America. But uh, there's an ever-widening gap between the few extremely rich and everybody else. And we haven't been talking about economic democracy. We're a long way off from there. But is is that not? What about the the reality there? I mean, is there not an adverse or even dangerous threat to democracy by having a few really really rich people and everybody else who who is not? And, and what about that? And then I want to follow up with another question. I think you're onto something uh, really vital. <clears throat> and it makes me think of a of a of a worthwhile book uh, by a Vanderbilt law professor, and the name of that book is the Middle Class Constitution. And what the book does is it, for one, it describes that you know the founders really did not anticipate a division of wealth, ever ever expanding division of wealth, the way we're experiencing today. Right. They essentially, the founders, of course, didn't use the term middle class, but they were. They were expecting sort of more economic equality than we have now. And then the book also traces that back to preceding democracies as well. So that is a a fight that we must keep fighting as well. I mean, we all know, I mean, before I was so worried about demagoguery, authoritarianism and corruption in American democracy, my great interest was money in politics. Mm hmm. And that, that remains a great interest. And by some analyses, you could say that the problems of, of legal corruption of money in politics was, uh, in some ways, another gateway towards where we are today. Hmm. So I think that's something that must be addressed uh, in, in whatever various ways we can address that through, uh, through laws. I think the, probably the first place to start with regard to uh, economic issues is the money in politics because, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, the, if everyone involved in politics at the top is, is passing dollars back and forth, you're going to have a natural movement of power and, and wealth upward, continuously upward. Mm. So that's a very critical place that is interacting, I think, always with these other issues we've been talking about. And talking about money in politics, my, I, I would guess that some of those countries that were represented at the uh, most recent uh, uh, democracy summit maybe have different ways of dealing with money and politics. As I, I believe there are some. I mean, right wherever wherever there's, there's demand for money, there's going to be a supply, 
and and in politics right now, you know, there's a tremendous demand for money to, I mean, the millions and millions of dollars that are spent on, on TV ads. Are there not some countries, some democracies, where each legitimate party is given a particular amount of time on on the on the media, the TV, and the radio, and no more, so that that <laughs> limits the demand for the money. Because you know, Citizens United, they have this uh, megaphone that that they you know, it's not just free speech; they can overpower others with the money. But in terms of getting the money spent on politics under control and and protecting and preserving our democracy. I'm not sure how, I mean, I don't see Citizens United being repealed anytime soon, and, and the demand for money continues to be there. Was this talked about? I suspect it must have been. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, but I don't, I don't recall huh? any conversation or, or speech or even quotation that relates to money in politics. Maybe the reason for that is that no one wanted to offend the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. in answer to your questions, I myself have not done any comparative studies in money and politics in, in, in various countries. But I feel pretty confident in saying that we're, we are a nation of excesses and famous for lots of things. And certainly we are famous for vast, vastly greater sums of money in our politics than any other country in the world. And I, I don't know this. I'm going to be clear. I'm just conjecturing a statistic. Sure. <laughs> I would I would posit that. If you look at the money spent in politics in the United States compared to the rest of the world, what we spend would be greater than all the other countries combined together. Uh, So, yes, of course, so many other countries have, you know, restrictions and essentially have something more akin to a publicly publicly financed campaign Uh campaign system. Yeah. And I have to think that at some point, I don't know what crises we're going to have to pass through. At some point, I have to think we will get there. Uh, because the 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 way we're spending money, and the way uh, I, I, there's a phrase I like called you know profit driven demagoguery. Yeah. We have so look at Fox News, look at the the conservative m- media. I mean, one way to understand that is just profit driven demagoguery, and of course Rupert Murdoch essentially you know confessed to that so to yes. speak in his recent <laughs> deposition. He said, it's not about red or blue, it's about green. Yeah. I mean, I, I was shocked. Everyone's shocked at his honesty, but he really just spoke truth to the current situation we're in. So there, this profit-driven demagoguery is at just a poison on our society, and much of it comes from uh, you know the campaigns. And in particular, our primary uh, system is that when I look at areas of reform that seem to me vital, there, there are a number of those including uh, education about democracy. We have to get codes of ethics back into media, particularly news media, so that it is it is a higher power, uh, so to speak, than profit-driven uh, forces. Um, but what interests me the most right now is our presidential nominating system and the primary system we have. Uh, it's, it's, it's there. When you read closely about American primaries, the only good thing about them is the people – get to voice their opinion about who the candidate should be. I mean, in, in fact, in a binding manner, but every other quality of primaries is very detrimental. For example, Ron DeSantis right now, unquestionably, he is not 
he is not running Ron DeSantis in the world in a vacuum. He is running right now for the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. And the primary voters are extremist. He, that's well known in both parties they are. So And so much money is spent on primaries. That helps to make it entrenched. A lot of people would lose a lot of money if we, if we change the primaries in some ways back to uh, – this is something I've written about some, – somehow, some way – getting our presidential nominating conventions to regain power so that at the minimum, they are not forced to elevate authoritarians and demagogues. We need our political parties are well known to be very weak right now. We need to get power back to them so they can gatekeep against dangerous candidates entering the presidential pipeline. Well, wouldn't that be good? For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we are talking about democracy most directly. Our guest today is... uh, Eli Merritt, political historian at Vanderbilt University, editor of a book titled How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders. And one of the things about what what is the money in politics for? It's to communicate a message louder and clearer and sometimes more deceptively than the other person. But it's to win votes. And people oftentimes give up and say, uh, you know, I, I there's nothing I can do. People complain about politics, but the reality is, they can get involved locally. There are money doesn't necessarily triumph all the time. It's about getting the votes. And I, as a former candidate who actually won a few times, uh, it's fun to get involved locally. You can get involved locally. I, you can, as I'm sure you, you agree, people complain much more readily than they join their local Democratic or Republican uh, committee. But they can do that, and it really makes a difference. It's not for in my in my party, the Democratic Party. There's the DNC, but there's I think that's. They have a lot of power, but there's more power really at the local level, and people can do it. And you know, just encouraging younger people, for example, to do that, and and convincing them that it can be fun, that our voices do matter. I, I wonder what your comments might be on that, and how you see that going. Well, when you say that, it 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 just it rings very true, and it makes me think of my own life and some civic organizing that I have done in San Francisco relating to a, a, a major park and a playground that was terribly kept, and it was at night sort of used as a place to shoot drugs and other things. And yeah. so I, you, I got very much involved with that. You know, there is some selfish interest. I had young children at that time. But certainly I think there's every reason in the world if we respond to the call to get involved, as you're saying, and I'm glad you brought that up, to do that at the local level, at least in part, there's things to do nationally and globally, perhaps, but at least in part at the local level, because a a number of reasons, it is the area where we can have the greatest impact. And equally as importantly, it is the level where we can receive back from our involvement, meaning we build community and we find a deep sense of meaningful meaningfulness, I think, in direct connection with others, working with others on, for example, this renovation of the playground and putting up lighting and changing it from what it was to something much better. So I, I, I think the search for meaningfulness is a not insignificant part of, uh, of a value that can accrue to folks from getting involved with democracy. But as you say, particularly at the local level, 
And there's all sorts of things people can do to support and advance democracy today online and absolutely do that. But mm. sometimes if that's not as satisfactory, go out and get civically involved yes. or democratically involved in your community because you get so much back from that as well. Absolutely. It, it, it's so it's really rewarding. I think once people try it, they realize, hey, this is kind of fun. I'm going to do this some more. And you point out that democracy is most easily corrupted from the inside. Certainly, this continues to happen in America. The right, for example, circumvents the electoral process. And this has been very worrisome. And I think it's sort of out of public view by packing the courts with their right wingers. Yeah, they, they've been doing this, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, right wing uh, religious nationalists and putting people on, on the benches as, as judges. They've been very effective doing this out of sight in packing the courts and going around the electoral process. Any thoughts on what we can do about this? Are you referring to packing the courts, um, meaning the federal judges who are, are, are appointed by the president and then confirmed by the Senate? Yeah, and it, 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 along throughout the entire uh, federal system. Uh, you know, when I think about the, the, the current threats to our democracy, I do realize that policy issues are exceedingly important to people. Uh, what worries me the most is if indeed uh, folks are being appointed or even elected at, into the judiciary who are, you know, to use a, a slippery slope term, who are corrupt, meaning, for example, Trump's attempts uh, in the past to appoint individuals to significant posts in government, including including for him, the Supreme Court, he he, yes. he, he, he felt, I'll appoint these folks and this is going to be great. You know, if, if in the 2020 election things are close and, or I can right. make them confusing and go to the Supreme Court, well... If if he had successfully got truly corrupt people up there, th that would be, to your point, one of the greatest crises that we could possibly experience, because the final arbit arbiter in our country is obviously the Supreme Court. Yes. Um, so I think that some of that now, I think of Merrick Garland being held up by McConnell. You know, that is that is another that's a famous example of, of constitutional hardball. And so how do we restore the norms of good faith and fair and fair, fair behavior and civility that have been broken down? I don't have an answer for that, uh, but it, it is it is essential. I, I think we have found the constitutional hardball, particularly with violent language. It does end up leading to more and more violence. Uh, so. So that the problem, the problem with judiciary is not often the one that's the most on my mind, but it's yet another problem, Bert, that we have to figure out how to tackle. Well, another problem with that, in addition to circumventing, uh, there, there's a, a really good book about it called uh, uh, The Power Worshippers by Catherine Stewart uh, about uh, packing the courts with right wingers. But there's also just the simple voter suppression. I mean, it, it's a lot more subtle now than it was during the Jim Crow laws. But there's there's a real effort, and they're finding ways to have, you know, voter suppression by changing uh, voting locations and places like that. How much of a threat is the national strategy to suppress votes now? How how much of a threat to democracy is that, or is it just an inconvenience? I think it's of extraordinary uh, importance, and it is really the best example. I think that 
you know, you could bring up or we could discuss of where constitutional hardball is being obviously implemented in an anti-democratic manner. And that's just that's something to really wrap our minds around constitutional hardball not violating the Constitution in most of these cases, mm-hmm. is being used specifically to disenfranchise yes. uh, individuals on the basis of party party preference or, or the pursuit of power within the Republican Party. Uh, I, and fortunately, we are living in a country right now where that is, I think, in terms of the Democratic Party and the Democratic base, is on fire to fight against that disenfranchisement you're speaking about and also the attempts to you know, interfere with greater expansion of universal suffrage. That is just a beautiful, necessary process that sustains a democracy, which is we've got to keep getting more and more people to vote. And in the best case scenario, I'm sure you would agree that would be irrespective of, of party affiliation or anticipated party, oh, sure. party affiliation. Of course. But that is the that is the key thing. So to 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 the pursuit of you know universal suffrage which is equal and not gerrymandered, is an incredibly important uh, pursuit. And also, of course, uh, we're getting more and more attention to the absolute importance of safeguarding our, our elections. So free and fair elections that are safe and secure, and somehow we're protecting them from you know, demagoguery and lies, uh, uh, such as in the example of Trump. So, And we haven't even touched on you know, the violent demagoguery that's happening now. I think if someone else out there is, is, I don't know, what can I do for our democracy? And is thinking of going to law school, or even if not thinking of going to law school, just becoming a student, deeply studying uh, the situation of, of, of speech. I mean, free speech, it's just a wonderful, you know, conundrum. Free speech is our, our most prized commodity, but at the same time, speech can absolutely bring down a democracy. So mm. where, where there are norms which control uh, demagogic and violent violent rhetoric, you're probably going to be okay with free speech. But we need to think very hard and be flexible in our in our country not to uh, not to restrict free speech in any significant ways. But we need to take a serious look at hate speech, incitement of violence. And defamation, which fortunately we're seeing some wonderful acts of the rule of law taking place right now uh, with regard to defamation. We, we, we need to protect the right of free speech while also preventing someone like Donald Trump. I believe legally, I believe most of the work we need to do about speech relates to re- restoration of norms and codes of ethics. But Trump, not long ago, you might remember, uh, he reposted a, on whatever the name is, his site is, Truth Social, whatever it's called, mm. to millions of people, an extraordinarily violent post which said, sir, I'm armed and ready, and we need to build an army 80 million strong, and I will die for this cause. And Trump reposted that. I mean, that's, that is incitement of violence. Yes. There is no question. The fact that it doesn't fit the tight constraints in our current constitutional understanding of incitement of violence, we have some opportunity there, I think, to expand that somewhat, as we do with hate speech and defamation. So that's a wonderful area of potential reform. I think we'll have to 
given what's happening uh, with uh, the expansion of digital communications, I think we're going to have to wise up in that regard somewhat. Oh, boy, it is going to be challenging. And I'm reminded of uh, something uh, Joseph Goebbels advised his boss. Say of the other what is true about yourself, for example, about free speech. You know, when they say that, uh, oh, they're not allowing conservatives, who are not really conservative, they're just right-wing radicals, you know, they're shutting down uh, free speech. Uh, and but uh, they're they're saying that of the other and and oftentimes it, it is working and some Americans are saying you know there's so much divisiveness can't we just get along you you quote you quote yeah I know you quote uh, and I'm not going to pronounce this right Vyosa Osmani of Kosovo who argues that appeasement of autocrats never works. Today's Republicans were happy to appease, even outright support autocrats. What about that worry about, oh, just stopping the divisiveness and, and just getting along? <laughs> no, I'm glad that you brought up that impulse that we have, uh, which which is a very important impulse. I mean, I, I do think we need to re- recognize and the absolute importance of uh respectful dialogue to the functioning of a healthy democracy. And I say that because that, again, was a major theme. That that phraseology, respectful dialogue, ha- is in at least three or four of the quotes in the book. So we, we don't want to be naive about it, but I, that does need to be held up as a goal that we are striving for. But you've also really picked the another quotation, kind of, if you look at the, the hard side of democracy that I most agree with, which is, you know, appeasement of of authoritarians never works. Right. Um, Biden said something very similar in Warsaw recently. And I think all history bears out that fact. That's why I feel so strongly, and I'm going to be watching carefully the second summit for what they do with Ukraine. I think that we, the second summit, unlike the first, which to remind you took place two and a half months before Russia invaded Ukraine. Mm. Uh, I, there's a beautiful opportunity in Ukraine for the world to come together and to not appease an autocrat. I am on the side of do whatever it takes, fight for however long it is, spend however much money we need to. The, the most accurate number so far is $120 billion has been spent. We, this Nothing is more important than in some ways potentially preventing World War III by spending as much money as we, as we need to there. So uh, so I'm looking – I think there's going to be a real opportunity to celebrate Ukraine – and Zelensky as really standing for every principle that the summit of democracy represents and everything that's in the book and everything that we all Mm. wish to be, which is to fight, fight, fight for these values and these rights. And we all have to be reminded sometimes in the course of the events of history, it does require us fighting for democracy and self-defense or if arbitrary at the at the very end of all the civil disobedience, if arbitrary government is installed, and every attempt at at reversal fails, that as John Locke instructs us, and John Locke instructed the founders of the nation, you know, you, re- revolution can be needed. I want to be clear to say I'm not encouraging revolution right. now, right. but it's I just think we that's part of the reading of history that we all need to understand. That, for example, in the American Revolution, that's my actual area of most expertise. I have a book coming out in June uh-huh. called Disunion Among Ourselves about the revolution. You know, they spent 10 solid years in peaceful civil disobedience against the British until that time that the British perpetuated violence and uh, 
you know, that's what that's what's happening in Ukraine. This is their American revolution. And I, for one, am passionately behind it. Sometimes you just got to take a stand. And uh, I, I'm not going to disagree with you on that one for sure. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Eli Merritt, editor of a book entitled How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders. He's a political historian at Vanderbilt uh, University. And uh, the book is about uh, one summit for democracy has happened, and uh, there's going to be at least another one. And there's a lot to do. And I wonder about, I, I always, I try to be optimistic. It's a little challenging sometimes. Trump lost, Bolsonaro lost, do you think the tide has turned? There does seem to be a lot of support for Ukraine. Is the message of the book as needed now as it was just a few years ago? Or has the, has the tide turned, do you think? Are people starting to get this? Is there, is there more momentum for protecting and preserving democracy? Well, I, I, I hope so. With yeah. each uh, small victory or glimmer of hope we see, I think that, uh, that, that people do experience sort of escalating hope. But I do not believe by any means that the tide has turned. I think that right. if we look at our country, that the, the, the movement of Donald Trump into power as a demagogue who converted into authoritarianism has done extraordinary damage to our democracy. And in some ways, the genie of authoritarianism has come out of the bottle and there's mm -hmm. been a downward sort of trickle of corruption. So I think now is the time to marshal all of our forces and push hard. I, I actually often in my mind sort of uh, view the, the struggle that we are up against. I think of Martin Luther King saying it's always going to be a continuous struggle. Um, but as on the one side, we have the forces of ethical constitutional democracy. And on the other side, we have forces of uh, demagoguery and, and, and disinformation, corruption and authoritarianism. So whatever side is stronger is going to end up winning the battle. So, you know, now is the time, as we have discussed, for everyone to recognize our democracy has been threatened as it really never has internally uh, in our history. The Civil War is, is an example of internal threat, but quite different from the one we're experiencing today. But so now is the time to get involved, to understand democracy and find your small area of involvement. I like to think of, I mean, Bert, what you and I do is in sometime, some ways our full-time job is, is democracy work. But I think everyone can at least tithe. And that's mm. that concept mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. folks in the past were supposed to give 10% of their money to the church. Right. I think a metric for people could be just give 10% of your time and effort uh, and energy to working for our democracy in one way or the other. That's a, I like that idea. That that's a very good. Not everybody needs to do that to to devote you know as much time as you and I do, obviously. But ten percent in doing that, interesting idea because we all do have an investment in it. And there's a, a a really good quote you have from Florida's Desmond Mead, who says the power of democracy is more than an idea; it is part of our very humanity. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I think uh, that he's taking the, sort of the concept of democratic political values of equality and justice and freedom and expanding those all the way downward to something uh, I think of as democratic behavioral values mm. of civility and um, cooperation 
and compromise and honesty. But then even further, I, I earlier brought up a focus in the summit on self-actualization and self-realization and, and personal fulfillment. I think that's what he's really getting at, that that's where it goes deep into our, our humanity, is that, that, that I have seen perhaps in history, other than some of the more successful, by good luck, some, uh, 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 some very liberal monarchs uh, in the 18th century, uh, even Charles III of Spain, uh, offered some opportunity for some of these values. But with consistency, it's only democracy that offers this, this thoroughgoing process of, okay, look at the Declaration of Independence, pursuit of happiness, for example. I'm not sure there's yes. government documents yes. <laughs> of authoritarian states that will emphasize something <laughs> something as as emotional as that. Yes, and that's part of human nature, the pursuit of happiness. I, I yeah, that, I think that's great that they that they put that in there. There's another really good quote you have from uh, Reinhold Niebuhr: "Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. Man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary." So what can people do? What would you advise people to do? How can, I mean, obviously, uh, l look at the book and pay attention to this uh, upcoming Summit for Democracy. What, what, can, what can you suggest people do to, to help preserve democracy that, that could be actually effective? Well, that quotation that you described, I want to uh, clarify to everyone that that is one of the endorsements uh, on either the back of the book or the praise page in the front. And that is by a congressman I don't know too well, but I do know him from Nashville, Tennessee, named Jim Cooper. And Jim Cooper is, in some ways, like Biden, is a politician of deep goodness. Uh -huh. You know, so much of this starts with being a good, caring person who has found their way in life to put a higher pursuit or a higher interest above the self. Jim Cooper, I don't know how many years, he was in the Congress from, uh, from, the, from Davidson County in Nashville for, I think, 20 years, maybe 30 years. And he, very sadly, <laughs> has been gerrymandered yeah. out of office. There was the only blue zone in the state of Tennessee, and the Tennessee legislature found a way to, I mean, absolutely carve the thing up in a way that where Jim Cooper... Uh, was left office. But now what I'm going to answer your question, one of the things I think that people can do, and I, this has been probably the most important thing that I've done is I'm going to say study the lives of people like Jim Cooper. We are all followers. We all need role models. I mean, half of my role models or more than half of my role models come from history. So that's another great way to find role models. Mm -hmm. But Jim, Jim Cooper is just one of these individuals who has the greatest impact on our democracy. So there are so many different role models. I would say that's one of the most important things that we can do is to is to get inspired by someone and follow in their tracks. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing, as I said, is to study democracy. It's not asking that much in the initial phase of getting involved. Study democracy, uh, try to understand it and understand that democracy, one way I think of it is it's a government of, by, and for the people, mm -hmm. but don't miss the fine print. There's a footnote there that says, oh, but also uh, there are other essential components without which democracy does not work, and that is the rule of law. Oh, yes. Check, <laughs> Sorry. Check, check, checks and balances, uh, the Constitution, 
uh, free and fair election, and very importantly, I think we often forget, is ethical leadership, a predominance of ethical leadership, ethical media. Uh, so there's so many different areas, uh, I think, to, to get involved. Pick, pick one and recognize you're going to feel very unimportant. And I think that to do democracy work effectively, it's important to be pretty humble in terms of what you can accomplish. Uh, I'll just throw out that a year or so ago, I was asking myself, what is Obama? What is this, you know, incredibly intelligent individual of great integrity? You know, what's he doing out there now? And I found myself somewhat disappointed at the small impact that former President Barack Obama was having during this period of crisis in our democracy. But it helped me in the end because I decided that, well, my impact cannot be any more than one four hundred thousandths that of Barack Obama. And somehow that inspired me. It helped me to get more humble and to say, look, we're all, I mean, if Barack Obama is unimportant and someone of his stature and power in this fight, then we, we all are. But again, I would, I would say we do what we do because we feel passion for it and because we know if we work together and we get critical mass that it makes an enormous difference. Absolutely. So well put. We can all make a difference in our own little way. And I, I think one can't emphasize humility enough how important uh, it is and, and how much of a difference it makes to, to not demand uh, credit for it. And we didn't even touch really on, on uh, gerrymandering, and that's a big deal. But it's one of many real threats to our democracy. Uh, the book is titled How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders, and its uh, editor is Eli Merritt, with whom we've been speaking. And uh, who's the publisher on that? Amplify Publishing. Amplify Publishing. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a, it's a lot to learn, and uh, boy, if you like democracy like I do, good stuff here. <laughs> we got to do it. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're doing it. Thanks, Bert. I appreciate your show, and it's been great to be with you. Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. It's coming through a hole in the air from those nights in Tiananmen Square It's coming from the feel that this ain't exactly real Or it's real, but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the game Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.